worship our God. And as you're seated, please turn your Bible to Genesis 23. Um, we are studying uh, verse by verse through this book. And, uh, and it's really the life of Abraham. So, and as any person's life goes through, there are certain life cycles uh, that happen to anyone. And so today we see an important one in the death of his wife, Sarah. So Genesis chapter 23, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 1 through 20 today. If you need a Bible, we do have Bibles on the back shelf. Please pick one up, uh, use it during the service today, follow along, make notes, highlight text, whatever, uh, to, just to encourage you and so you'd remember in your own walk with Christ uh, throughout the week. So Genesis 23, and again, let's look at Let's read um, verses 1 through 20. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. <clears throat> and Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and, for and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, it is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, all of whom went in at the gate of his city. No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, my lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which is the east of Mamre, the field with uh, the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, like Abraham... Um, our lives go through certain cycles and life cycles that we uh, experience, uh, Father, and grieving the passing of his wife. Father, we know grief. Um, Father, as we look at this passage, we do pray 
uh, that you would give us your spiritual comfort, you would give us uh, your word, that you would help us to think through how we live this out in our lives in a way that pleases and honors you. This isn't something that we just do by our flesh. God, this is something that is done by your Holy Spirit. And so we ask, pour out your spirit upon us, uh, me as preacher, us as listeners, Father, that we may all be active in receiving your word today as you give to us. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when a loved one dies, uh, isn't it that we want to do something special for them? You know, and even as a loved one may die, we can recognize the impossibility of of really uh, recognizing what they meant to us. It's hard to recognize the difference that they really made in our lives. We uh, may want to do something for them, just in memory of them. Um, we may want to write something. We may want to say something. Um, I remember in, high, in middle school, uh, a classmate of mine died of cancer during that time, and, and his parents, his heartbroken of the loss of their son, created a, a, um, a research agency to raise money to, um, for cancer research for, uh, for children who got cancer and would die. And it's still going today, you know, at our reunions and all those things, they still talk about it. Um, it is a tribute to him, to the difference they made in his life, um, even if it's unable to really express the grief that they felt or their love that they had for their son. And so if you've ever experienced that, uh, you can relate with Abraham as we come to our text today. Abraham's wife of many years, Sarah, she, uh, she, she dies in our passage. Um, this has been his traveling companion. This has been the one who joined with him in the very promises of God. And, and he wants to honor her. He wants to honor her with burial. He wants to honor her with a grave, uh, a tomb, a marker. But he's not able to. And why is he not able to? Because he doesn't have land to do it. And so here he is, he's surrounded by vast amounts of uninhabited land, probably, but there's not one inch of it that he can say his own. There's not one inch, there's not one tomb, there's not a gravesite. Now, decades before this, God had made a promise to Abraham. And that promise was that he would give him the land he was living in. He said, look around you, that land is yours, it's going to be yours. But as of yet, when we come to this passage, that was still unfulfilled. Now, God had made other promises that took a long time to fulfill. Often we talk about the length of time it took God for uh, to fulfill his promise to have a child. And we saw that a few weeks ago in the giving of of Isaac to Abraham and Sarah when they were 90 and, and 100 years old. But there's still promises that hadn't been fulfilled, and this was one of them, uh, the promise of the land. And the promises of God were wrapped up in this land of which Abraham had none. Now, Abraham's experience here is similar to ours, to our life with Christ in this world. On the one side, God has made wonderful promises to us. We have so many promises for our future, and we know that we shall be made full. But sometimes we look at where we're at, and we realize how short we are of what God has promised we one day will be, of that place that we will be someday. And though we have so many blessings and promises for God, 
we, we think of where we fall short. We have so much sin in our lives. And we wonder if we will ever feel like we've made progress against the sin in our life. We're surrounded by evil. Uh, we know that heaven is a good and righteous place, but the world is so full of evil, it can feel like we can't even find an inch of good sometimes within it. We can experience such loneliness. We're promised fullness and fellowship with God and others, and there's a lot of people around us, but when we feel alone, when we feel like no one understands us, we, feel that we can feel there's not even an inch of friendship in our lives, and heaven can seem so distant. Or joy. We have so many material blessings. Why is it we get so down and discouraged? Shouldn't we have more joy? So what do we do? Do we give up on the, the promises of God in desperation? Do we do something that we are going to regret? Do we just say it's not enough? You know, have you been there? The place where you feel like you have nowhere to go. Your time of need, emotional need, nothing you can do, no resources to utilize. And so at those times we might become discouraged. But what if we could hold on to some promise of God appearing and showing up inside of our life? What if we can enjoy a satisfying portion of God's promises in this life, even if it's just a picture, a portion of what heaven will one day be like? Even if it was just a picture of the future, what if it was enough just to, to fill us up? So what did Abraham need? He needed a small spot to bury his wife in a sea of land that God had promised to eventually give him. And what do we need? So often we just need a small spot of encouragement of God's promise to keep us moving forward. Little successes, a reminder of promises, the glimpses of heaven. Now in a war, armies go to work to gain ground. A city, a hill, and then to put up a flag. I mean, that area is then under the control of that nation. And it might be small, but it becomes a starting point, a staging point for the future. This is sort of what Abraham needed here. And we need it also. We need places in our lives, in our environment, where we say, this is the Lord's ground. Isn't that what Joshua did when he said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is what the Lord has done, and this I will obey. So God has promised Abraham an entire nation of land. What he needed to do for this case is take hold of one part of that, one part of that promise so he could bury his wife. In the same way, you and I, we have, we have to take hold of just one part of, these, of God's promises, put our flag there, Claim is God's promise given to us and to build our lives on that promise. The promise of God are not just future. They're meant to be experienced to some degree right now. There's a gap that we can feel between God's awesome promises and our experience of them. My promise is over here, experience over there, and how do we bridge them? That's what we want to look at today as we see what happens in our passage. All right, the first, my first point today um, is that we need to bridge the gap by knowing our hope. We need to bridge the gap by knowing our hope. And so Abraham, he is confronted with one of the most difficult gaps between God's promises and experience of life. He's confronted with the tragedy of death. Death, the great enemy. We see in verses 1 and 2 with the death of Sarah. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Now Sarah has a unique place in God's redemptive history. She lived, we read, 127 years. Now you realize, we're not told the death age of any other woman inside the whole Bible other than 
Sarah. I mean, it shows a bit of her significance inside of Scripture. You know, most of the women noted in the Scripture are unsung heroes of God's redemptive history, active participants, but, but not Sarah. We see her identified in, in the death, in her age of death. But it's also the first recorded death and burial inside the Bible. We saw others die, but this is the first one buried. The very fact this verse speaks about her death shows her importance in God's plan. We can also see how important she was to Abraham. If we look at verse 2, Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. His companion of years, she'd accompanied him in, the, in his trip to the promised land. She was a partner to him. Inevitably, his success that he had came in part because of her help to him. She had uprooted his life for him. I mean, their, their lives were intertwined. And they shared so many experiences. If we look through the Bible, 1 Peter chapter 3, it describes her as a poster child of a submissive wife. She was an example of godly women. The Bible commends us to follow her example. If you look at Isaiah 51 verses 1 and 2. And now she's gone. And Abraham weeps. The words we see at the end of verse 2 describe his grief as wailing out loud. It's a, it's a lament that just erupts out of his heart and spills through his mouth. Important reminder of the appropriateness of tears and loss. Appropriateness of weeping. Ecclesiastes 3.4 says there is a time to weep. Psalm 3.4 reminds us that we're a people of weeping. Jesus himself wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. Romans 12.15 even tells us to weep with those who weep. It is appropriate for us to weep. Death is the great enemy of the Bible. Death is the consequence of sin. It's the consequence that our forefather Adam brought into the world. And so it's not natural. It's not part of God's original creative design. It's a breaking off of what should not have broken off. And that's why we feel the pain. That's why we feel the loss. And we'll weep. And our world doesn't know what to do with grief. And these days it seems like it wants to stifle it. I'm told to get over it and move on from it. But it's not that easy. You know, the Bible, doesn't, the Bible gives a bigger picture. It doesn't tell us to get over it. it. doesn't just try to provide a cure for it. In fact, the Bible gives us a companion to go along with our grief. We may have the companionship of grief, and some of that companionship may never go away. But the Bible gives us another companion. That companion is hope. Right? When we lose someone, we, we, can gain one, we, we gain one or two traveling companions. Right? If you only know the companionship of grief... You know, we know there's an offer of a companionship of hope. I mean, that's what Grief Share is about, or Grief Share Ministry. It's why we have resources for grief out in the foyer. You know, those, those things are helpful as we find that companionship to walk with us through our sadness. But there's a hope. And, and what is that hope grounded in? It's grounded in the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus. Jesus Christ himself rose from the dead. He is risen. He's risen indeed, just as we'll announce in a few weeks. Death, that final enemy of God, has been vanquished by Christ as he rose from the dead. And it's the last enemy that will be thrown into the lake of fire. Because of his resurrection, we know death is defeated. 
and that through faith we can have life, as 1 Corinthians 15, 56 and 57 says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks indeed. So Abraham, he's grieving. He wants to honor his wife, and that creates his problem, and his problem is he has nowhere to bury her. And then we see the challenge of the life as a stranger, right? The absence of permanence. Looking at verse 3, Abraham rose up before his dead and said to the Hittites, I'm a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. I mean, this is so important to him that he goes to purchase land from the Hittites. You know, they had let him use the land, right, freely, but he was like a tenant. They could take it from him at any time. He wants a place to come back to and remember her. Now, he has certainly buried people before this. He had a number of people that were working for him and working with him, and certainly there had been those who had died and been buried in the land. And maybe he learned in that time that, you know, he might uh, be able to bury them, but he couldn't go back to those places. That little honor was given to those places. There was no connection with the promises of God in that person's life. And so he wanted his own spot. He wanted his own spot for Sarah. And he had no right to take a place for himself. We also see he wasn't looking for a free gift. He was looking to purchase something from them. And it's interesting here, and it's worth noting, that, that he really wants to bury her. You know, he could have cremated her. He could have burned her. He could have spread her ashes. It wouldn't have been any problem. But his desire is to bury her and to put up some sort of marker. And in order to do that, he needed land. I mean, the land was so important to Abraham. It was important to his descendants. And burial connected her with that promised land. Death becomes our last chance to state our hope and to state our faith. Sarah's faith is shown in her burial inside of the promised land. But he's a sojourner, so he has nowhere to put his dead and, and that lack of permanence is unsettling to him. He wanted something permanent. And so will the Hittites sell him the land? They don't want to. And they'd prefer not to sell him anything. That's what led me to think that the world will give God's people charity so long as it does not impede their aspirations. Right? They'll give lots of charity, but just don't, in, just don't get involved in my world. We see this working its way in verse 5. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. I mean, it looks like a generous offer, doesn't it? Right? They really respect him. Uh, they want to give him the choices of tombs, something fit for royalty. But they don't want him to actually own anything. This is their land. So they'll let them use one of their They'll, they'll let him use one of their tombs, right? It's, they're our tombs, they say. It's not your tomb, but our tomb. And as long as he doesn't demand too much of them, they're going to go with it. They keep the property rights. They decide who comes uh, to see them. And since um, they can always do what they want, they, you know, make great promises. There's, there's a lot of similarity in the world that we live in today. I mean, God has a kingdom. God is establishing and he's building his kingdom. But the world doesn't often uh, celebrate that, and, and, but they're kind of happy for 
God's people to do what they want in the places far away and as long as it stays out of their lives. As long as we keep our faith within the doors of the church, as long as your faith doesn't affect anyone else out there, uh, people will cheer it on. They'll tell you how good it is that you found something that, is, that makes you feel good. But when it comes to Christian conviction and engaging the world, you know, if that ever happens, watch out. Right? We talk about the protection of life, the sanctity of marriage, the image of God, the importance of trust, uh, our own call to share our faith. When any of those issues or others come up, you know, the world wants us to go back in our box. You know, this, is our, this is our world. The Christian faith has implications. has implications for us outside the walls of the church. And sometimes we must not accept the so-called charity of the world, realizing that our call is to be faithful. That's what Abraham does. He's going to work for it. right? It shows that, that deep-seated desire to honor our dearly departed. Verse 7 we read this, Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, uh, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field for the full price. Let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Abraham is willing to do what's necessary to get a burial place for his wife. He knows the exact place. And he's willing to pay whatever it is to get it. He knows who to negotiate with. And he's willing to enter into that. You know, whatever price he names. Abraham, Sarah deserved this honor. She sacrificed so much. She deserved to be buried in that land. All right, so this is the end of our first point. And before we go on to the next one, let's just recap. Abraham wants to bury his wife. He has no land. Um, and he knows that God has promised this land. And what he's doing, you see here, he's planning He's basing his planning, his decisions based on God's promises, not on his present experience. He's working in light of the fact that God had promised him land, not on the fact that he didn't have land right now. For us, we can get so caught up with what's happening inside of our lives uh, that we fail to see them in light of God's bigger uh, promises. And if we're going to bridge that gap between God's promises and our experiences, the things we need now, we need to know those promises. We need to know them. That they come by faith. We need to act in light of them. And that's the life of faith. Abraham is doing this, and that's why he asked to buy the land. Now, we do it as we trust in Christ, as we obey God's commands, as we share our faith, as we love someone in this sinful world. But it starts off by knowing our hope, knowing that promises. So that leads us to our second point, bridging the gap by persistent pursuit. This is in verses 11, uh, 10 and 11. So maybe important for Abraham to bury his wife, but it's not important to the Hittite people. And so there's a resistance the world has in making place for God's kingdom. So Ephron, he's in the crowd. We see that in verse 10. Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, all of whom who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it in the sight of the sons of my people. I give you bury your dead. So he doesn't want to sell it. He goes back to that offering of charity. Even though the God has promised all the land to Abraham, and even though Ephron and his descendants are going to lose it in the end, he does not want to make a spot for Abraham to bury Sarah. I mean, Israel is coming. 
And it's a picture for us of how the world will try to hang on to its way of life even though the future is with God's kingdom. The future is not in the kingdom of this world. I mean, people don't want to repent of their sins. They don't want to believe in Christ. They have no interest in obedience to God's command. They don't want to see God's kingdom grow now. But this is a mistake because it's an investment in this doomed world and it's silly and foolish to refuse to let it go. In the Bible, we, we have this promise. God is creating a new heaven. He's creating a new earth. This world will pass away. And without faith in Christ, people will go to hell. The world is transformed. And yet, despite these warnings, the world wants to hold on to its sin. If you're here and you're, you're not a Christian, I mean, is there a sin that you are holding on to like this? Something that you just refuse to give up? You hear that you need to repent of your sin, that you need to believe in Christ. There's life in there. But you don't want to let go of something. I mean, in the end, God does not need the charity of your meager works. Right? He offers you grace. There's no future in the world. What's needed is to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for his people. And by believing in him, your sins are taken away. Stop holding on to that sinful unbelief and turn to Christ and find his love and grace. So if Abraham's going to get his way, he's going to have to negotiate. He's going to negotiate hard here, and that's what he does. We see this starting in verse 12, this dance of negotiation. Verse 12, we see Abraham showing humility. He bows down before the people of the land. But even in his humility, he still remains assertive. We see he's, he... Uh, and he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field, accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. And so Ephron names his price. Ephron answers Abraham, my Lord, listen to me, a place of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Right, you can see the dance happening there as he names a price. But Abraham pays. Abraham listened to Ephron. Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had uh, named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So Abraham had already been told no twice by this point, but he won't let it go. And I, I gather the price is high. It doesn't matter. He's willing to play the high price. That's how much it matters. It's a reminder that we have to be very persistent sometimes if we're going to see God's work in our lives and also if we're going to see God's kingdom thrive around us. We, you know, we must not think this world will help us into godliness, that it's going to natu happen naturally or easily. It just doesn't happen. It's also a reminder for us of the work of evangelism and in prayer. You know, we need to be persistent. Not rude, but persistent. Reminding people that the only way to go to heaven is through faith in Christ. People may not believe it at first. We have to keep at it, certainly in prayer. But we need to persist in our own faith as well. Persistence in coming to church. Persistent with family worship. Persistent uh, with ourselves and honoring the Lord. Persistence in evangelism. Your, your, your flesh is not going to want to give in to God's kingdom. Unbelief will still resist. Sometimes our children don't want to go to church. But we, we press in. We have to. And as we persist... We have that hope, that confidence that God preserves us in that very work. I mean, it's really the dual work that we see happening in salvation. It's described in Philippians chapter 2, a dual work of, of God working and us working. Um, and, and we see both taking place. Therefore, my beloved, it says, as you have always obeyed, so now, 
Not only my presence, but much more my absence. He says this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Spiritual growth in ourselves and others, you know, it is a fight of our lives. So it's just that it takes energy, it takes work to grow. But at the same time, the power of that growth, you know, the nutrients of it, you know, that, that's given to us by the Lord. He also works it out in our actions. The Apostle Paul, he also knew that the Christian life and his witness was a lot of work. 1 Corinthians 15.10, he says, On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. So on the one side, it requires persistence. On the other side, as the Holy Spirit comes and blesses that work, we know that God uses that persistence. 1 Corinthians 15.58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers... Be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So Abraham's persistence pays off, and he gets this land. And so that leads us into our third point this morning. The need to bridge the gap by focusing on what has been already fulfilled. Focusing on what's already been filled. Look at verse 17. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which is the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that was in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. So here he has a place, finally, to bury his wife. But we can't lose the bigger picture, either. That Abraham now has a small and permanent place inside of the promised land. He's right. He has a claim to this tomb. No one can take it from him. God's promises are coming true. They're, they're true for him in this very small place. And this little plot of land, it would come up again in the future. If you look at Genesis 49, 29 through 33, it's a good summary of the way it comes up. It comes up a bunch of times, but here's a good summary word. This is the word of Jacob. Um, he was Abraham's yet-to-be-born grandson. Um, and he is talking about his own burial. And he says this, and, and then he, that's Jacob, Abraham's grandson, he commanded them, these are his children. And he said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. Right? You see that? It's the same place. The cave that's in the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan where Abraham brought with the price from Ephron the Hittite to possess it as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commending his sons, he drew up his feet in the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. I mean, you see, this is a generational place of burial. You see Sarah and Abraham and Isaac and his wife Rebecca, and then you see Jacob's wife Leah, and then finally Jacob. I mean, this is Israel's first territory in the promised land. It'd be hundreds and hundreds of years until they saw uh, the rest of it. But this was small, and this was theirs. I remember the first house that we owned. 
It was, it was 760 square feet. Some of you have apartments that are bigger than that. Um, but, you know, you just remember that enormous blessing to be able to move into that first place. We, we got it so we go to seminary. Um, it, it was small, but it was ours. It was a great start with home ownership and a lot of ways it provided some resources so we could come here and to do this work. You know, it's that little thing. It has that special place inside of our memory as well. And see, for Abraham, this small tomb was much bigger than its size would show, especially when we see it in light of history. Now, this is a good picture for us of what we um, theologians or pastors sometimes call the, the already and the not yets of the Bible. The already is the Bible and the not yets of the Bible. And some of the promises we get to enjoy right now, we already have them. Other promises are not yet true, and we're waiting for those. We're waiting for those to someday happen. And so in Genesis 23, one of the, the future promises of God becomes present in reality. It becomes present in Abraham's lifetime. It becomes something he was al- could already enjoy. It was this foretaste of the promise of God. It was a foretaste of the glory that God would reveal. He would never enjoy the full thing in his human life, but this little foretaste showed him what God had store for him in his ultimate purposes and plan. That's what Hebrews eleven thirteen shows. It talks about the life of Abraham and others who walked by faith. And it says, these, like Abraham, all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. So what this says, that Abraham lived by faith. And he looked to the future in every part of his life, except for this, this parcel of land. And in that, he was able to look in the present, now owned, part of his future inheritance. So here's my final takeaway. It's something that we should endeavor to do. Something we endeavor to do in our spiritual life. Something we endeavor to do in our families. Something we endeavor to do inside of our communities. To endeavor to enjoy little bits of heaven here, right now, through faith. Enjoy those little parts of heaven here now through faith. And we do what we can to make God's ultimate promise our present experience. That's what worship is about. As we gather here today, it's a foretaste of heaven. God's people, sinners, forgiven by the grace of God, gather together to sing praises to God, to hear the pardon of our sins, to hear of his mighty works, to take the Lord's Supper together, to fellowship together, and to enjoy the presence of God. It's a little bit of heaven. Now, the way we do that is the way we love. When we love others, we bring a little bit of heaven down in our, in our sinful, fallen world. We do something kind. We help people experience what's right and good. We bring joy into someone's life. When we do something loving, no matter how small it is, it can be like that tomb. A little experience of God's promise in a world that seems so difficult. Right? Another thing we can do, we can carve out those little places where others can experience and enjoy the promises of God. That's in the sharing of the gospel. We make Christ known so they can find an entrance into the kingdom of God. We do that as we share the gospel. It's our mission. It's our calling in the world. Ultimately, what's the connection between God's promises and our present lives? I mean, it's all found in Jesus. And Jesus is that bridge who brings these wonderful promises of God and brings them now to us through faith. 
Colossians chapter 3 talks about that. Colossians 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not on things of the earth. The treasures of God are with Jesus Christ. And they come to us as we're united to him by faith. You'll never have them if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus. You'll never know the joys of heaven if you don't believe in him. You'll never know them in this life, nor in the one that's to come. They're the promises for those who believe in Jesus. And why can we know them? Because Jesus paid the price to bring you into them. Abraham may have purchased this piece of property for 400 shekels of silver, but the only way you will gain a place in heaven is because Jesus Christ pays for your sins, paying the penalty of your transgressions, reconciling you to God. Forgiveness is a gift that comes from God, purchased through Jesus' life, Jesus' sacrifice, and your call is to believe in the Lord Jesus. That's the way we know his promises. And so when you're discouraged, when the promises of God seem so far away, carve out that oasis of hope in the desert of your doubts. Raise that flag on the promise of God. I mean, that's the land of your hope. We call it preaching the gospel to ourselves, right? Reminding ourselves of the wonderful promises of God that are given to his people. We stop listening to that voice inside of our head and we start reminding us ourselves of what the Bible says. You might struggle with depression. You might struggle with doubt. You might struggle with darkness. You might feel grief or failure. But even that time, we have the word of God which comes alongside as a companion telling us what God has done. That's where we raise our flag. That's where we say, this is where I stand. The promises of, your, of you being forgiven. The promise of you being adopted. Adopted into God's family. The promise of you being loved. And th- those are your promises as you believe in Jesus Christ. Go back on those simple promises. Go back to them over and over and over again. Understand your life through those. Those were purchased by Jesus Christ in his love for you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, uh, what promises you have given to us, and yet we struggle to enjoy the hope these promises give us. Instead of resting in Jesus Christ and our future promises, God, we often think we have to make of our lives right now. Father, help us to receive your promises. Help us to act on them, to know we're forgiven, to act like we're forgiven people, to know we're adopted and to act like we have a father in you and we have a family in your church. Father, help us to know that we're loved and not just to be trying to find love in this world as if we have none from you. God, as we believe in the Lord Jesus, his promises are ours. Remind us of them. Put them in our minds or hearts. Help us view our life through them. Father, Jesus purchased them at great cost. We're thankful that he did. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.